0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners joins us later in the program to look at the week ahead and discuss whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining us is Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also a fellow at the Center for a New American Security. He's part of CNA's Crack Russia team and one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military, Russia and unmanned systems. Sam, welcome back uh, and hope you and yours had a great weekend. Good morning, Vago. Great to be back. Uh, Indeed, always a pleasure having you back on. And before we get started, today's program is brought to you by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technologies partner and the largest aggregator of U.S. Department of Defense cyber data, HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Sam, with just an enormous amount of news to be discussing today uh, from Ukraine's uh, counteroffensive to Moscow's decision to uh, suspend uh, the deal that allows Ukraine to export uh, its wheat through the Black Sea, as well as Turkey's shift uh, back into NATO, uh, as well as its increasing support for Kiev, uh, as well as some successes the Ukrainians have been uh, scoring, including the overnight attack, uh, the latest attack on the Kerch Bridge, which uh, apparently proved devastating uh, destruction of an ammunition dump, uh, killing uh, a Russian general. We're going to get to all of that uh, in a minute. Let's start with the reports that Ukraine is actually taking a pause in its war strategy Uh, after the counteroffensive has gotten off to a slow start. New York Times reporting um, and quoting uh, both American and Western uh, sources uh, that Ukraine has lost about 20 percent of their new gear in exchange for marginal gains because of the sheer number of mines laid by Russian soldiers. Again, that said, they've still had some successes destroying the ammo dump, killing the general, damaging the bridge. Where do we stand right now in so far as the the prosecution uh, of the war and the counteroffensive in particular?
1: Well, we talked about the difficulties of Ukrainian counteroffensive in the face of Russia's growing defenses and their entrenched positions. Russians had uh, time to develop a lot of these um, defensive trenches that stretch for hundreds of kilometers, basically along the entirety of the front. Um, and um, we talked earlier that it would be difficult to storm these well-fortified positions. Obviously in this type of an equation, the uh, resource allocation goes to the attacker that has to breach and hold these defenses. And what has happened over the last uh, couple of weeks is that even when Ukrainians sometimes hold their positions, Russians uh, can take them back or vice versa, and so we have the CISO action on many parts of the front. Both sides are using an enormous amount of artillery, and both sides are using a growing number of FPV, kamikaze type drones to harass and destroy each other's positions, vehicles, systems, um, and um, and command posts. And that is also having an enormous effect as well. And so um, we knew that this may be a difficult grind for the Ukrainian military, and it looks like they're acknowledging that despite their successes, despite the fact that they're continuing to push Russian soldiers on many parts of the front, it's a it's a difficult advance against well-entrenched Russian positions.
0: Um, let me uh, take you to the question of the attack on the Kerch uh, Bridge. Uh, obviously, Britain has supplied, uh, I think it's about 100 uh, storm shadow weapons. France is sending about uh, 100 of its uh, its version of the storm shadow, which is one of the world's most uh, precise Uh, penetrating uh, cruise missiles. We had the strike on the ammo dump that was also using storm shadow and then the strike on the Russian uh, general. And then over the weekend, we also had the the combined unmanned surface vehicle, unmanned air vehicle uh, attack on the Russian fleet in uh, Sevastopol. Again, another sort of element of Ukrainian power. Walk us through all of these and what it means for uh, the war and the messages that it's sending Moscow because they've got to be worrying that the Ukrainians are able to strike these kinds of targets with precision at range.
1: Well, the bridge attack was probably a long time coming considering how successful Ukraine was last October when it attacked the bridge. It's difficult to defend um, such an asset. I mean, it's such a large object. How do you actually defend it against all manner of aerial and maritime um, um, attacks? And so overnight, Russian media and then the Ukrainian government are actually confirming that it was two unmanned surface vessels that struck the Kerch bridge. It severely damaged the part of the bridge uh, for automobile traffic. It so far has not damaged the rail traffic. So basically it's no longer possible for uh, Russians to use that bridge. If, uh, if they have a vehicle, just a regular vehicle, uh, trucks are not going to be, uh, using that bridge for military supplies. It is possible still for the Russians to use the rail link, but the actual, uh, military supply um, is actually done over land far to the north, between Taganrog and Mariupol. And this is what the Russian state media is confirming, that despite this attack and despite the very extensive damage and probably lengthy uh, repair time necessary to kind of put the soul back together, this may not necessarily affect uh, military operation, Russian military actions, and the supplies of uh, equipment. However, it does demonstrate that Ukraine is using an asymmetric advantage in attacking such key Russian military and industrial economic assets. Again, the cost of these USVs versus the massive cost of damage to the Kerch Bridge are incompatible and shows how some of these new technologies are rapidly evolving. On Sunday, there was um, an attack on Sevastopol with Ukrainian UAVs and and USVs as well. And uh, the Russian state media claims that it downed all attacking UAVs anywhere between seven and nine, and there were also two USVs that were also destroyed. And again, Ukraine is using its uh, rapidly evolving uh, emerging technologies such as uncrewed surface vessels to strike the Russian bridge. What's interesting about the Kerch attack is that one of the Russian commentators said that this wasn't just a... Uh, a, a uh, uncrewed surface vessel it was a semi-submersible so that part of the shape of that uh, usv was not visible and it made it very difficult to identify and interdict the usv on road to target again th- this technology is not new uh, this technology actually exists existed for years prior to russia's invasion uh, we know that a lot of drug cartels in, um in latin america are using semi-submersibles to um, to hide their uh, shipment uh, from the Coast Guard and, uh, and the world militaries. But again, Ukraine is uh, using its uh, its knowledge of these systems and its rapidly evolving high-tech um, acumen to extract a very heavy cost against uh, Russia economically, and sometimes even militarily.
0: Uh, in- indeed, right. I mean, they, they already uh, sunk uh, the flagship uh, of russia's black Sea uh, fleet uh, among other among, among other ships that have been just damaged and sunk. Uh, since. Um, Let's shift to the topic of Russia's uh, generals. More than 30 have been demoted, disciplined, fired, uh, and we even haven't seen two leading generals, uh, Suravikin, who uh, is the commander of the Air Force and the deputy commander uh, of the uh, war, uh, as well as Gerasimov, uh, the chief of defense uh, staff, although we have seen Shoigu. Uh, One two-star Ivan Popov, uh, the commander of the 58th Combined Arms Army, uh, in Zaporizhia, said that he was fired for just being honest. That the war is not uh, going well. Last week, we discussed that uh, Vladimir Putin met with Prigozhin five days after the mutiny, uh, as you know, not just with the Wagner uh, Group chief, but also all of its top commanders for, you know, a multi-hour meeting. Um, and it doesn't look like the Wagner uh, Group is going to Belarus. In fact, they're going back uh, to Ukraine, and there's a lot of speculation about what all of this. Means, including my question about whether or not this was just sort of broad maskirovka, and that Prigozhin was actually drawing out elements uh, that were anti-Putin elements to expose them. Not the first time in Russian history an elaborate plot would be laid um, uh, to, to crack down on potential dissent at the top in the security services. What do we know? What, what, what do you make of all of this at this point? And do we know, you know, do, do we have a lot of data but no information?
1: Well, we do have to remember that this is still an evolving situation. And so there's plenty of unknowns, plenty of information that we don't see plenty of things happening behind the scenes. One of the common underlying characteristics behind these high-level demotions amongst the uh, Russian generals is that they were actually, according to the Russian commentators and soldiers and uh, military correspondents, they were actually effective and they were liked by their forces. And so these are the generals who drew attention to a lot of deficiencies and problems within the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine early on, and continue to do so. And now they are no longer available to protect the lives of their soldiers, to uh, to launch effective missions. Uh, again, a lot of it is uh, is still evolving. But um, anyone. It appears, at least, that anyone who openly criticizes the MLD right now, even when such critique is necessary, even when an honest self-assessment is necessary, anyone who does that now seems to be removed from their position, removed from their soldiers, removed from um, the military formations, and like Suravikin is, is not heard from for, for days and weeks at a time. Uh, again, what does this have to do with uh, prigozhin's insurrection? Was this a false flag operation to expose discontent within the military? Is the MOD such as Shoigu and Girasimov for going after those generals who did not speak out openly against Prigozhin during his insurrection, who did not um, act against Prigozhin in a timely fashion? Um, it's it's a possibility, um, of course, because of open critique of Shoigu and Girasimov, not just for um, from Prigozhin but from others. The uh, they have to basically shore up and strengthen their position. And the easiest way to do that is to remove, is to remove anyone um, who, who disagrees with what the MOD is doing or who expresses discontent, whether or not such removal is going to affect um, the military operation against Ukraine in the first place. And so it seems like um, MOD is going after disloyal generals or generals who are so effective in Ukraine, they can pose a direct challenge to um, the uh, higher echelons in the MOD, which are openly criticized right now by a lot of people in the country and in the military itself.
0: So so people have told me that Gerasimov hasn't been heard from also. Has Gerasimov been out and around? I know Shoigu has been out and about. Um, is, is Gerasimov as invisible as uh, Surovikin at this point?
1: Uh, no, actually. I believe on July 10th, the... Um, the MOD published footage of Garasimov receiving reports from okay. uh, Russian military commanders, and so he's he's technically still in his position. Again, just like Shoigu, he's a loyalist, and uh, he right. also will try to strengthen his position against any uh, any challenge. Uh, and
0: uh, I have to uh, apologize because it this this last week uh, or so, you know, I, I was over uh, in the UK, and not, right, so I'm just remembering something that was a data point, maybe, uh, uh, before. Uh, I'm just remembering an earlier data point. There are two issues I want to get your take on. One is uh, Turkey uh, and uh, the NATO meeting in Vilnius last week, as well as uh, the grain deal. Let's go to Turkey. Turkey, uh, you know, was straddling the fence, uh, both helping Ukraine and being a strong supporter with Bayraktar and other systems, while at the same time actually giving Uh, you know, passing along Western uh, electronics to the Russians. So they go in their weapons to be used against Ukraine, as well as shielding some Russian money and indeed, you know, haven for some uh, oligarchs. That appears to be changing. And despite all of the talk about a divisive, uh, you know, NATO summit, I I thought it was incredibly positive. It was unity. Ukraine was sitting at the table with everybody. Absolute commitment from the Alliance to help Ukraine, uh, no matter how this ends. Uh, not only economic aid, but also then creating the NATO-Ukraine Council, right? It was a pretty strong showing of support for Ukraine. Talk to us about both the Turkish message and the Vilnius message and how they're likely received in Moscow. Well, again, uh,
1: what what's important here is to kind of go back to um, uh, Russia's position towards Ukraine halfway through 2022. When it became clear that uh, Fast attacks against Ukraine are not possible, uh, fast and easy victories against Ukraine are not possible when Ukrainian war basically devolved into trench warfare with significant losses. It became, it became clear to Moscow basically that the policy they have to execute is one of um, outlasting both Ukraine and, and the Western support for Ukraine. And the longer this war continues, uh, the more Russia hopes it can actually outlast Ukraine and Ukrainian allies. Um, in combat and in supplies and in other factors, including economic factors. And it's likely that Moscow will continue on this path now that, um, for example, um, there are significant changes in the NATO alliance, new members, uh, there's a new position by Turkey, as you have indicated. Um, But again, uh, Russian industry, Russian military are hoping they can outlast Ukraine. Now, how that's going to actually turn out is uh, is an ongoing uh, question. Uh, We're witnessing the impact of this policy on the Russian industry and the the military, of course. We just discussed the impact on the military, for example. Uh, But this is the policy that Putin wants to execute. And um, really, the impact of the summit in Vilnius is probably less impactful on Moscow's policies than its continued drive um, to basically grind down Ukraine um, and uh, basically slow down Ukrainian counteroffensive and just to continue to throw resources and people at the Ukrainian military, again, in the hopes that they can just outlast this war.
0: Um, is, is that already, uh, just uh, very quickly before I ask you about the Green deal, isn't this already paying dividends? I mean, the U.S. president basically acknowledged that we're running out of ammunition, uh, conventional 155 ammunition. The Ukrainians need ammunition. That's one of the reasons we're giving them cluster munitions and the entire Russian strategy is keep sending Shahads, keep sending weapons. Eventually, the West is going to run out of weapons, and, and we are really approaching, approaching the end of our stocks. We don't replenish them until next year. We're building artillery shells fast. Europeans are, Europeans are giving their stocks to replace by, with Korean stocks. I mean, is, is this actually a successful long-term Russian strategy? Well, we. Sam, I mean, are we thinking ahead long enough? Because once this Shahed factory is inaugurated, Russia is going to have even more access to uh, stuff that will deplete Ukraine, Uran, uh, Ukrainian air
1: defenses. Well, this seems to be what the Russian military and the government are banking on. Basically, uh, they uh, the longer the war continues, the more they think they have the time and the resources to reallocate to uh, basically. Uh, uh, to devote certain resources where um, they are most needed. Again, we have to remember that the Russian economy is not mobilized for war yet. This is still a limited impact on the larger economy, even though the Russian defense industrial sector is now working overtime. Whether or not they can or cannot manufacture certain types of weapons is besides the point. Um, What Again, what is key here is um, how long can Putin's government last in this war. And I think when we talked about Prigozhin's insurrection and when we briefly discussed some of the sentiments surrounding uh, his actions on June 24th and 25th, there was uh, some hope in the West that this would actually galvanize larger opposition within the government, the military, and society against Putin. And some of that opposition was on display, especially when um, Prigozhin had no opposition as he traveled up to Moscow. Uh, in his military columns. Uh, But what's happening now is that Russian president and his allies are removing any discontent, any dissent uh, from, from the military ranks. Anybody who's effective enough to actually do something has been either silenced or removed from their position. And so in the absence of any credible threat to his rule, the Russian president will continue the policy, especially since the society and the country are basically going along with it for all kinds of reasons that we have discussed previously as well. So is this a successful strategy? I don't know I would if I would use the word successful because there are obviously significant issues in the society and the economy. But again, the, the Russian government and the Russian president want to outlast this war in the first place and they think they have a chance.
0: Um, let me ask, uh, 30 seconds, uh, give us your sense on the impact of the Green Deal uh, ultimately on, on Ukraine. This has been critical. It's been a global stabilizing factor. Uh, and it looks like, you know, I mean, the Russians have a tendency of, you know, they, they're they playing a long-term game and they want to turn the world against Ukraine again and against the West. Um, what's the impact of this grain deal or, or impact of them not renewing the grain deal, right? How does this play out? Do they start sinking Ukrainian ships Does the West have to uh, escort Ukrainian ships through the Black Sea? I and mean, how does this, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, I think a convoy escort makes sense. It's a sovereign nation
1: uh, transiting international waters, which is the Black Sea. I think the impact of the grain deal is going to be felt downrange. The pressure on countries that depend on both Russian and Ukrainian grain is enormous. And these countries, a lot of them are in, in the Middle East and Africa and Asia, have expressed their own very unique stance on this war. And a lot of these countries actually... View um, their dependence on this grain and their economic stability uh, much higher than um, any political consideration for Ukraine or or for how this war is prosecuted. Um, one of the one of the biggest such influencers is India, for example. And a lot has been written about India's very unique stance about this war and about their dependence on um, imported raw materials. And so the impact of this. Um, of this deal is going to be felt downrange. And we are yet to actually uh, really feel how a lot of these countries that depend on Ukrainian and Russian grain import are going to feel about this war now that it has passed its 500-day mark, now that the war uh, demands enormous resource allocation from Russia, from Ukraine, from uh, Ukrainian allies. And again, these countries have a very unique position, which does not necessarily correlate with where a lot of Western countries stand with respect to Ukraine and Russia.
0: Sam, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us and already looking forward uh, to having you on uh, again next week. Thanks so much. Have a great week. And a quick word from our sponsors, Bell sponsors our daily coverage, HII sponsors our global coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And joining us now, as he does every Monday, is my good friend Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners for a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, thanks very much for joining us and hope you guys had a great weekend.
2: We did, Vago. Always a pleasure.
0: On Friday, uh, the Washington Roundtable discussed the NDAA. Michael Herson of American Defense International delved into great detail uh, on where we stand on that. Obviously, uh, a measure passed with a, a lot of strictures that actually the Senate is not going to go for, uh, which we discussed uh, as well. From your standpoint, looking at the NDAA, what did you like? What did you not like? Uh, before I get to what you think the Senate ought to be doing about what it is the well, House did.
2: It was you know the narrowest margin of passage uh looking back at least to 2000 so i don't know Vago, i mean on one hand i feel uh you know it was laden with a lot of the elements of the culture wars um i think it was a, it was a vote that was easy to take um for gop members um and and an easy vote for democrats to oppose now you know, this thing is dead on arrival in the Senate, so it's going to be interesting to see, you know, what the Senate pulls. but it's it's not going to include a lot of the provisions that are in the, the House version of the National Defense Authorization Act. You know, I'm still in the mind that it may be like the, uh, the debt ceiling, you know, there's going to be a lot of fingernail biting, a lot of angst, but at the end of the day, <clears throat> in December or January, we are going to get a National Defense Authorization Act. Um, I think it's going to be torturous to get there, um, but I also think, you know, at, at some point, um, you know, <laughs> there's a recognition that national security can't be subsumed to these these side kind of, of social issues and uh, that, that we'll eventually see something pass, but it, it's not going to be pretty to watch and, um, you know, we're going to see the Senate version, uh, you know, before recess, and then they've got to sit down and conference the two bills together. And, you know, it's normal, you know, the new normal, most of these things pass uh, Congress in any event in December, January, early January, very early January. And I think that's kind of the calendar that I'd be looking for on this.
0: Um, You know, there uh, is uh, a lot of discussion, right? I mean, uh, the number is a good number, but unfortunately the department is sort of boxed in uh, because of uh, the spending deal. Are there any uh, elements of this going past uh, the, um, obviously the, um, the social elements of it or the abortion related ones, What what are the elements of this budget that you found most problematic from your standpoint or potentially positive?
2: Well, look, it is what it is. I mean, it's a, it's effectively sure. You know, there there are differences between the House and Senate versions of the authorization bill. I frankly think you know the more important ones to watch are going to be the Senate and House appropriations bills because that's really, you know, that's the money that that will be appropriated to different accounts and different programs. And you know, as I said, there's just there's not a lot of leeway. Mm-hmm. Um, based on the, the, you know, fiscal responsibility act. And, and so, you know, the interesting thing is going to be, well, what can you get in a Ukraine supplemental? And then, you know, there's another interesting issue. And I, this is very front and center of my mind, because as you know, we have a place in Vermont that was kind of at the epicenter of the flooding that took place last, uh, that took place on, on July 10th. And that town Ludlow is a mess, right now. But it's a reminder that, um, you know, the FEMA's disaster relief uh, fund is now projected to have a deficit of, I think it's around eight or $9 billion for fiscal year 2023. Um, When I look at uh, the surface water temperatures in the Gulf of Mexico right now, I mean, it's, it's an incubator for some pretty significant hurricanes. You know, when those start to fire up, And I just wonder if we're not going to see something emerge where there's going to have to be a a disaster relief supplemental, um, maybe not for fiscal year 2023, but sometime in the fall of this year, depending on the magnitude of what else comes down the pike in in some of these extreme weather events, and that might be a vehicle uh, to attach a Ukraine supplemental, maybe there's something above and beyond uh in 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 that bill for the department of defense these aren't going to be you know we're not going to see anything in the order of magnitude that was <clears throat> done um in recent years by congress you know 30 billion dollar plus ups that's not going to happen but maybe that's a vehicle that could be outside of this regular appropriations process and again i i think there is a lot of <clears throat> performative theater uh going on in washington this stuff uh with the budget but I'm. I i do not want to be completely sanguine about it. Um, I believe me. I worry about it to a degree, but I've also seen, you know, there were workarounds on the Budget Control Act. We never got the worst case outcome on sequestration. There are extremists in Congress, but you know, when re- when it's really come to push the shove, I think some of those extremist views have been sidelined. We didn't. We didn't default on our debt.
0: How do you game uh, government shutdown prospects at this point?
2: I think it's, you know, throw a number out, you know, 60, 70% possibility um, to start the new fiscal year. But, you know, if it's a week or two, it, it's bad for uh, federal employee morale. Um, you know, is it something that would really spook markets? I don't think so. Um, and I also think, you know, as much as there really are people who just want to burn down federal government spending in Congress, you know, you, you probably could count those people on uh two hands and two toes uh you know but again I think the majority will put aside the performative aspect of this and and quite bluntly what people can raise money on some of these events and and postures but um but I do think that uh you know there's a majority here that, Will write a ship that that may look like it's listing and frankly headed towards the rocks uh, <clears throat> before it in fact does list, capsize, and hit the rocks.
0: <laughs> very, very, very elegantly put, uh, Byron. Um... Um, we're running a little bit uh, out of time, and I want to get your sense, Byron, on uh, earnings. Lockheed's going to be the big one reporting uh, this week. We have uh, Francis uh, Tallis. Next week, we're going to see Boeing. Uh, from your standpoint, what are your expectations to the, uh, of what we're going to see and what in turn that means for the entire ecosystem?
2: So last week, you had two read-throughs for this upcoming earnings season, Vaga. You had the Treasury release the outlay data for June, and that gave us a full look at the quarter uh, that ended June. And then Kongsberg reported earnings. The investment in O&M outlay data was up, <clears throat> not surprisingly, and up uh, very strongly, particularly for investment. Kongsberg also reported uh, in their defense and aerospace segment, uh, pretty robust sales growth, but a decline of about 100 basis points in the operating margin for that segment. <clears throat> you know, for me in this upcoming year, earnings season, I'm not worried about sales that contractors report as much as I am concerned about operating margins <clears throat> and the pressures that they're still going to see, although I think they're improving, but some companies I think are still gonna struggle with labor availability and supply network issues and how those uh, issues get reflected in forward margin guidance uh, and and, um, sell side expectations. You know, I don't think there's anything catastrophic about to come undone here, but you know, markets are a game of expectations and investors generally like to see margins increase. Um, not decrease, and I do worry about uh, supply networks and labor availability as two factors that that might uh, might might put uh, a little bit of pressure on those those operating margins. Uh,
0: indeed, and uh, your look at the week ahead uh, and what folks should be focusing on.
2: Well, you know, when you mentioned what's going on with Congress, both on the appropriation side and the. Um, the the authorization side, um, Aspen Security Forum takes place this week. That's a very interesting set of discussions, kind of the intersection of defense and broader economic security. Um, that th- those are really the two biggest things. And then, of course, you mentioned earnings, AAR, which is a medium size. Aerospace firm that also addresses kind of aircraft maintenance and parts markets is having an investor day in New York on the the twentieth. Um, the Baroni Center at George Mason University is is uh, conducting an event that same day on uh, second sourcing a procurement program. So that's kind of what's on my schedule this week.
0: Uh, fantastic. And uh, we're uh, uh, looking forward uh, to bringing you a segment uh, with uh, Dr. Jerry McGinn, uh, who directs the Baroni Center and is doing some uh, some of the nation's finest work on industrial uh, thinking. Byron, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Have a great week and we'll see you next Monday. Thank you, Vago.